Hello, I'm Kevin Richard. As the 2022 legislative session continues, lawmakers are heading into budget writing mode. The Joint Finance Appropriations Committee met on Wednesday, March 2nd. It was a struggle, but JFAC agreed on a higher education budget proposal. That goes to the House and the Senate. And as you know, over the past two legislative sessions, the House has killed higher education budgets on the floor. So the process is just beginning there. And the process is just getting started on the K-12 budget. JFAC will meet on Monday, March the 7th, to write up budget bills for K-12. To get a sense of how this process is going and what to look for, especially on the K-12 front next week, I sat down with two members of JFAC, Senator Jim Woodward, a Republican from Sagal, and Representative Wendy Horman, a Republican from Idaho Falls. Here's our conversation. Well, Senator Woodward, Representative Horman, thank you for taking time this week to talk to us. You're right in the thick of the budget battles, the budget debates, and a really interesting debate on Wednesday morning over the higher education budget. Representative Horman, I'm going to start with you. There's so much to break down in this higher ed debate on Wednesday. Just walk us through the highlights of the budget that did pass, the one that you and your group worked on, and the methodology here on CEC, on employee pay raises, on Boise State enrollment. Walk us through the highlights there. Thanks, Kevin. It's good to be here, and, and uh, thanks for the question. I think, as you noted in your writing, it it was a little bit of a tense morning. But as uh, Senator Agenbrod right, rightly pointed out, this is what the process looks like. And both motions were bipartisan, bicameral, and so there was a variety of opinions, and ultimately uh, a motion led by Representative Amador, Representative Nash uh, from the House and myself had worked on, um, as well as Senator Van Orden, is the one that prevailed, but it was a tight vote, as you know. Uh, some of the highlights in that budget are, one of the things that we heard repeatedly in JFAC this year was how uh, the CEC doesn't cover all state employees. Mm -hmm. right. And you'll notice that this motion does do that. We wanted to make sure that all employees uh, received that 5% CEC uh, that had been recommended. And so- And you had the letter from Kurt Liebeck, the president of the state board, saying that he had assurances from the university presidents that if you passed a budget that fully funded the CEC, they wouldn't have to come back and do a tuition increase this fall. That had to factor into the deliberations. Correct. That absolutely factored into the deliberations, um, not only with in meeting with the institutions and understanding their needs, but uh, we worked hard this year in advance of this budget running in the Joint Finance and Appropriation Committee to make sure that we could get enough floor support for this. And, and we think we think we do. Uh, that remains to be seen. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of moving parts, as you noted. Uh, but we, we tried to work more closely with our floor this year to bring something forward that we thought uh, would have a chance of passing on the first time, rather than go through this repeated uh, rinse and repeat cycle that we've been doing the last two years. So that was a really important factor of this budget. Some of the line items were trimmed, but uh, some were left in. But there was a line item that you requested in this budget that wasn't in the governor's proposal, about $4 million targeted really to Boise State and its enrollment growth. Right. I sat down with uh, members of the Boise State team and we actually walked through spreadsheets and they showed me where the gaps were and what their enrollment increases were. And while this isn't ideal, it's one-time funding for ongoing needs, uh, it's, it's better than not having it funded. 
And uh, so that's what that $4 million is, is transferring their own money out of their own saving accounts over for them to use um, to get through this year in lieu of a tuition increase. Now, Senator Woodward, you proposed a different approach. You wanted a budget that uh, wasn't using one-time money uh, in that manner, and you wanted some different things. What, what were you hoping to see? Well, really, the, I think the two differences that we talked about in that, because uh, we, we'd sat, all of us sat in a room together for quite a bit of time on these, and then just toward the end came to a, a little bit of a difference of opinion on the funding sources. And the Higher Education Stabilization Fund, just like some of our other rainy day funds, uh, many of us view should be utilized when there is a shortage of money. And, and this is, that's not the case this year. We've it's really an emergency. It's a stabilization fund. That's right. And so we have been uh, looking at a $1.9 billion budget surplus this year is the number that's most often repeated. Um, and so it's pretty hard to say that we're in a rainy day situation. And that's why we're trying to provide a budget that uh, stable ongoing budget for the universities. Really, uh, at the end of the day, they weren't that far apart. $643 million, $640 million, that's mm -hmm. pretty small in percentage, um, but just a different approach at uh, dealing with that last little bit. Uh, I, I probably, I could have supported a motion with uh, even with the same amount of money with ongoing support, but we would deal with politics and policy here. <laughs> and, and so we, when we talk in these small groups, we have to acknowledge that the two chambers are different and, and, and passing a budget on the floor of the house is different than passing right. a budget on the floor of the Senate. And there, there's just not the, as much, uh, I'll look across my kind of counterpart say if, if there's not quite as much support for higher education in, uh, in the members, some members of the house, some members of the house. That was a gracious way to put it. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I think our, our long-term goal is to continue to, Mine, at least, is to get some more money in higher education. And I, I have we've looked at these graphs and, and the, the long-term trends going back 20 or 40 years in Idaho. We used to, from the state level, from the, we used to fund the universities at, at much more. We funded them at a higher level as com in comparison to their total budgets. And tuition and fees have become this bigger and bigger portion. If you look right. at a, a graph that showing that the students are picking up more and more. We want to make higher education accessible to all and, and because we need that, we need those people in Idaho. Business is asking for educated people. Uh, and uh, when you look at, at the big businesses of Idaho, that's what they're after. Either uh, somebody trained in CTE and coming come through a community college or someone with a higher degree coming out of a four-year institution. But, the modern world requires uh, tech-savvy people, and, and that's what we need to have for the workforce here. I'm curious, too, with, with both of you, one of the things we heard on Wednesday, uh, Representative Ron Nape went uh, at length talking about programs and you know, line items within the university's budgets that he believes is continuing the path of CRT, uh, embracing CRT principles. It was a tense stretch in the budget hearing because, it, you know, several colleagues objected, several members of the committee objected, and there wasn't a lot of support in committee for his version of the budget, but 
this is the very issue that has come up on the House floor and has killed higher education budgets on the House floor. I'm curious how you both read Representative Nate's uh, comments and how you uh, reacted to them and how you think that's going to play out as this uh, budget makes its way onto the House floor. Well, you know, I respect uh, any legislator's right to put forward their opinion. And that's what Representative Nate did. And, uh, you know, he's seeing it from his perspective and, and he shared that and he wanted budget cuts on that basis. Uh, ultimately, that's not where the committee went. But it it is the right of any member to, you know, bring forth a motion at any time. And, and that's what he did. He didn't share it with members of the committee in advance. So we had time to look at it. And that makes it that always makes it difficult to support any motion that comes forward at the last minute just because you simply haven't had time to review it. Uh, so, uh, but that is, you're, you're right, that's a big part of the debate on the House floor. Does he have a point here, or do you just not feel like you know enough about the, the examples that he cited Wednesday morning? You know, I think based on what happened last year and, and House Bill 377, I think there were some things brought forward that were concerning enough to people that all Republican members of the Idaho House voted yes on House Bill 377 last year. But that goes to forcing people to believe or adhere to certain things. And um, I, I can't, I don't know that you can argue that's what those monies are doing is forcing belief. Now, you can argue because the bill also says you shouldn't spend money on that. And I think that's where Representative Nate was coming from today. Senator, how do you think this all unfolds on the Senate, if this is the budget that makes its way onto the Senate floor? Well, I think in the Senate, the, this budget probably is just fine. I want to make the point that uh, typically when you have uh, an employee or you know, someone below you in an organization, if they're uh, not behaving in the manner you like, you don't starve them out, you nurture them. And that's the approach here. And, we, and I will say that we have two members of the joint committee who don't participate in any of the budget setting process they, they, other than voting. And so uh, that's, that's just not productive. I, if I were going to title a book, I'd say how to lose friends and not influence people. So I, the, the, the approach is wrong. If you want to have a difference, you want to make a difference, and you, you think that there is, and Representative Horman said it, said it right. If you were all uh, have the right to bring a different motion, but uh, you, you come into it, have a conversation with the other folks, convince them of your reasoning, and then have half a chance. We've gone 18 to two quite a few times this year. What should we be looking for on Monday when you turn to the K-12 budgets? I mean, what's that process look like at this point? What are the what are the big decision points? What are the sticking points? Well, the work group continues to meet. We have, uh, as you noted, until Monday to arrive at consensus. And it is, JFAC is a different committee. It's unique mm -hmm. from any other committee in the building because it's impossible to work all 100 plus budgets. You just can't do it. So you have to learn to rely on your colleagues on both sides of the aisle and in both bodies, the House and the Senate, to get the work done because it's impossible for one person to do every budget. So 
Uh, we do have these work groups where we get in and, and we really have some uh, vigorous debate and lots of opinions are shared and then ultimately, but just with higher ed, we do try to get to one motion, uh, but sometimes we can't and uh, we're in the middle of that process right now on K-12 and working through all of the, the big pieces of the K-12 budget right now still. And what are those big pieces that you're you're trying to sort out right now? Well, the the governor has called for uh, forty eight point nine million, forty nine million dollars in the base for career ladder, plus an additional thirty six point four million of uh, using ARPA funds for one time bonuses for teachers to kind of accelerate or advance the career ladder. We've already passed a $25.5 million supplemental, most of which goes into teacher salaries. Mm -hmm. There's a $17.7 million $1,000 bonus on the table for teachers, uh, $105 million in health insurance, plus $75 million in a reserve account to really help all school district employees get improved health insurance. And then, of course, the $47 million for literacy that uh, we'll let Senator Woodward talk about the debate going on over in Senate Ed on that. Yeah. There are some different approaches on uh, how we put money into uh, kindergarten or early literacy. Uh, I think that'll play out Monday this coming this next week when we see, hear some of the bills on policy bills in regards to kindergarten. Um, but the the other approach that can is, is to put the money in literacy and let the some of the decision making mm -hmm. happen at the local level. Uh, so I think that's that's where we're headed with that that one big item in the K twelve budget. Uh, I, I'd like just comment on where, how I think we've been successful in, in K-12 education. Twice now, we've set out some five-year plans. And once those five-year plans go in place, my observation has been, then there is, there is general consensus, and we come into the legislature with some idea of knowing what the plan is roughly. We've made great strides with the career ladder. And, uh, so I think, I think that... Um, Perhaps at the higher ed level, it's time to do that same kind of go through that same kind of process and set out a vision of if, if we have a goal, it's a lot easier to take people to, to get some consensus and bring people to that goal. The details can work out and the different the nuances of how how we get there. But right now, I think we're missing that strategic vision for higher ed, and that's probably part of why we battle so hard. I couldn't agree more. And I think one of the things that causes us trouble is our decades-old funding formula. Mm -hmm. And uh, we're paying for inputs rather than outputs. And it's a difficult conversation to change funding formulas. You've watched me work <laughs> for, for several years, yes. <laughs> to try and do that in K-12. And they're actually about the same age, about 28 years old. And, uh, you know, it was just built for a different time. Uh, and they worked well, they were improvements back then, but it's time to relook at that. And I think if we can pivot the conversation with a vision, what we're actually looking for, what we're trying to produce, I think I agree, it will, it will yield better outcomes in this process. It feels like with K-12, a lot of the decisions have already been made. I mean, you've approved, and it's been signed into law, the, the change in employee insurance for for K-12 employees. Empowering Parents Grants has passed, except for the spending component of it. I mean, you're committed to spending the money now that these policy bills have already passed. Does that make the K-12 budget easier to put together? Even though you've got pieces like K, like all they can do, they're still up in the air. I, I think so. I think because there is, there's, there's a direction where we're headed. And so 
part of that, as you mentioned, that healthcare bill, uh, the healthcare for teachers and Representative Horman and I uh, worked on that a lot with Representative Furness. Uh, I'm glad to have been part of that team and carried that bill in the, in the Senate. We do have some details to work on out around it now and people who are they're listening to an Idaho Ed News podcast, they probably know what those details are. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll try and get that straightened out. But yes, the, I think the, the $105 million that gets injected into the, the healthcare system along with the other money we have to have for buy-in, uh, the $75 million piece of it, those uh, should come through these bodies. Great. Does it give both of you some pause though when you think about the the influx of federal dollars that are coming into education, whether it's you know fifty million dollars for empowering parents grants or you know money for another year on the career ladder or, or all this money that's coming directly into the K twelve system or the higher ed system, does that give you pause and how do you as budget writers try to get a handle on what all's out there and where where it all is going? Well, uh, not just budget writers, but uh, all legislators, I think, are struggling with that, and not just in the education space. That was a big part of our debate. We had some budgets narrowly pass on the House floor today for that very reason. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, people are just, it's so much money, and people are struggling to get a handle on that. In the K-12 space, we know that a lot of the ESSER three funds remain unspent, and but enough have been spent now that I feel like people are taking this seriously and trying to use it for what it was sent for, COVID relief. Mm-hmm. You know, whether that's sign-on bonuses for bus drivers or lunch room workers or substitute teachers, those sorts of things to help get ease us back out of the pandemic uh, mindset and learning conditions. Uh, so yes, it's hard to get a handle on, and I check. there's a website you can check if you go to the State Department's website and click on federal programs and then pandemic spending. Uh, your your listeners can go do that and they can see the chart there that shows exactly how much uh, is remaining unspent of all the federal dollars related to COVID relief and how much their district has spent. And I suspect the debate here in the State House would be different if that money was being spent quickly. You'd be coming back and saying as budget writers, hey, whoa, right, slow down, make sure it's being spent wisely and going to where it's most needed. Agreed. I, I, uh, I have spent time with school district superintendents and school boards uh, discussing those things and, and what the needs are and, and where they best need to go. And uh, the reason the legislature acted last year to put no strings on those, we could have put some strings on those funds last year and we didn't. Because it's always been my philosophy that the local decision makers know best where the funds go. As you know, I propose a funding formula that does the same mm-hmm. thing puts the decision-making at the local level, and they know their things best. They know their kids and their teachers and staff best, and that's who needs to make those decisions. Even though it was, there was some frustration levels that we were hearing complaints about staff hiring and those sorts of things while there were hundreds of millions of dollars unspent. You two represent such different legislative districts, but one issue that you've got in common is the concern about property taxes, whether it's North Idaho or, or Eastern Idaho, growing areas, growing concerns about property taxes. All of these decisions that you're making on K-12 especially are going to have effects on that property tax piece, that supplemental level piece. Walk me through that connection and how you 
how that factors into the decisions you make. Well, it has been a goal from, of mine from the day I set foot here to try and to wean us back off of those supplemental levies. And the supplemental levies are a product of the tax change we made in 2006 mm -hmm. when we went from 5% to 6% sales tax and got rid of the M&O levy line item on property taxes. And we went from about one a quarter of the school, 115 school districts having supplemental levies. Now we're upwards of 90 of those. So from yeah. somewhere around 30 school districts up to 90 school districts now rely on supplemental levies. And I, I think that that teacher healthcare bit, in, injecting an additional $105 million into the system in that manner, uh, and then the career ladder changes that are being made uh, this year to add more money to teacher salary, all those things, if we continue to sh shift the, the financial burden of the school districts back onto the state revenues, then we can ease the pressure on the, the local property taxpayer. And and a bill that I sponsored um, uh, did uh, come off the House floor uh, this week that, um, as Senator Woodward said, as we begin to shift some of these funds that have previously been picked up by local levies or other sources, um, uh, this bill to identify what supplemental levies mm -hmm. are being run for, um, specifically on the ballot, did come off the House floor with just one no vote this week. And I think that's an improvement to help us at the state level understand what our district's paying f using this for at the local level, at the local level, these levies. So that as we do, just what Senator Woodward said, start paying for more health insurance, possibly kindergarten, other items, definitely teacher salaries, um, we can understand what the needs are at the local level. There's just really no record of that right now. Right. And as reporters, you know, we cover supplemental levy elections. We've got another big round of them coming up next week. And some districts are very clear about where they're going to put their supplemental levy dollars. Others... Uh, the details are not quite as complete. So, you know, that's something that we run into journalistically. So you're almost done with this, or at least you're a good chunk of the way done with the budgeting process. And you've, you've got a chance to kind of test a theory that everybody talks about at the state house that it's tougher to write a budget when you have a lot of money. Is that been, has that been your experience this year in, in education and beyond? Uh, yes, definitely. Everyone came in with, um, all agencies and departments have come in with large requests and it's an opportunity to try and true up some deficiencies maybe that we've had from the past but it uh, it's very much in everyone's mind now that, that we have to be watching what the total is and, and make sure that we can sustain that and we make ongoing commitments and starting at the beginning of the year everybody was really making a good distinction there I think between an ongoing commitment and a one-time commitment the ARPA money, okay, we're comfortable using that one-time money for this one-time program and, and then trying not to let it, trying to make sure that it doesn't turn into a, an ongoing program, an ongoing commitment. So everyone was pretty aware of, well aware of that. But uh, with the the green sheet, which is the, the sheet that we use to track all the action and it's updated every day, that sheet shows the policy legislation coming up that has a financial impact and plus the actions on the part of JFAC uh, and, and, and watching that green sheet people are starting to already say 
um, we better be careful. And if you look at uh, revenues now, it, it probably justifiably so or, or uh, recognizably that uh, as inflation has ticked up now to 7.5%, there's some uncertainty in the world, um, people will start to change their their patterns in that income tax and sales tax and reflect that, especially sales tax will reflect that faster. And it feels like the K-12 health insurance issue is one of those examples where on the one hand it's easier. This has been an issue that you've been talking about as legislators for years. You had the money this year to launch it, but you've made an ongoing commitment. I mean, this is 105 million a year mm-hmm. come rain or shine. And I do think that's so important important to the recruiting and retaining of our teachers that that's, that's a worthwhile investment. It's been really interesting for me to observe the budgets that are asking for funds because we have the money versus what the needs are. So the judiciary is a budget I've been working deeply as one example. I went through that thing with a fine tooth comb. Uh, the executive director has sat down with me and spent a lot of time talking through it. None of that to me in that budget is just because we have the money, their actual needs. Mm -hmm. Whereas the teacher's health insurance, we're able to do it this year because we do have the money. Others like parks and rec, those are uh, improvements to campgrounds and parks and day use areas. Those are terrific investments for one time dollars. Mm -hmm. And so it really varies with each budget, whether the request is there uh, because the money's there or because the need is there which makes it a tougher process. Which has made for a lot of meetings with a lot of people. And um, it's, you know, it's hard to say no when people feel justified and, you know, this isn't fair, we need more, there's so much, why can't we just have a million extra or 10 million extra or 20 million extra? It's hard to say no, but. Pennies add up to dollars. Kevin, if I can add one little quick one. Yes, please. Back to the levies. I want to give a shout out to Boundary County. They're running their bond levy for a new elementary school, which the elementary school I attended as a young child. And it was I thought it was an old building when I was there, and that was in the uh, 70s, late 70s. Uh, but I, I, did, I have a construction company now, and I told them if they pass the bond, I'll come tear down the old school. So uh, we're hoping it passes, and I can get to go and tear down the school that I attended. We'll pay even more close attention to that election on top of all the other ones next week. Okay. Senator Representative, thank you for taking the time this week. Thank you. Again, that was Senator Jim Woodward, a Republican from Sagal, and Representative Wendy Horman, a Republican from Idaho Falls. They both sit on the legislature's Joint Finance Appropriations Committee. That'll wrap it up for the podcast this week. It has been a really busy week here at Idaho Education News, and if you miss a day, you've missed a lot. On Tuesday, the House Education Committee voted down an education savings account bill. Very divided vote after two days of testimony and debate. Blake Jones has the full coverage of that hearing and that uh, vote. On Wednesday, I was in JFAC, the uh, higher education budget discussion that we um, talked about in the interview. I have a full story about what's in the higher education budget and how we got there and what happens from here. On Thursday, I was in the House Education Committee as the content standards debate heated back up. There are two proposals headed to the House floor that would replace Idaho's existing standards in English language arts, math, and science. But nobody really knows how much that's all going to cost. And we explained that in our story on Thursday. And we have even more at idahoednews.org. The candidate filing period is underway. That runs until Friday, March 11th. So check my election notes feature. I'm going to be updating that daily with the latest news on who's running, 
who's not running, and who's running against each other. Devin Bodkin has a detailed breakdown on Tuesday's school elections. We have bond issues and levies all across the state, and Devin tells you where those elections are taking place and what's on the ballot. Follow us on Twitter at idahoednews.org for all of the latest news. We'll tweet out links to our latest stories, bulletins on breaking news. Follow us on Facebook and join the conversation there. And check back next Friday for another edition of the podcast. I'm Kevin Richard. Stay safe and have a good week. <laughs>